Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 97, released on November 28th, 2018. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe today to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about uh, e-scooters, about research-intensive startups that spin off universities, and about Europe being America's technology police, and also much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with uh, Oscar Fares uh, from the European Investment Fund, in which he will share a few interesting details of how the fund works with business angels across Europe. Actually, I had no idea it does that at all until I listened to this one. We are also going to talk talk about uh, upcoming events as usual and share our recommendations for books and stories and whatnot that we have come across recently. I am your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today for the first time by two co-hosts. First up, Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer is here. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing great. Just back from a really exciting startup week in Dublin, feeling so energized after such a great week of great startups, great community energy. It was awesome. That's amazing. Did someone actually come up to you to buy you a coffee or a drink as we urged people in the last podcast? No, I don't think so. I did get a number of drinks, but I don't know if it was because of the podcast. Let's just think that it definitely was. <laughs> okay. Right. And today we have a special guest, uh, Martin Bryant, uh, media consultant, writer, speaker, and educator, also known as uh, the former managing editor, editor-in-chief, and editor-at-large of The Next Web. Hi, Martin. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hello, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks, Andre. Great to be here. So these, uh, these are a lot of uh, titles at The Next Web. Can you just uh, quickly maybe introduce yourself in a more elaborate way and uh, uh, tell what you've been doing uh, uh, since what 20 years ago when you started working in tech <laughs> 20 years ago but um uh, i was with the next web for seven years uh, in various roles uh, started out as a uh, part-time blogger and uh, ended up uh, uh, going through managing editor then editor-in-chief then editor-at-large and then felt it was time for something new and um so i worked with uh, tech north for a while they were a uh, mainly government-funded organization in the north of england promoting the the tech sector uh, and helping develop the tech sector uh, in the north of england and um and then it was time for something new and uh, so this year i've basically been essentially freelance working in all sorts of different uh, capacities uh, mainly as a, a consultant working with tech and media companies i've done some work with google um i was uh, one of the people who uh, selects uh, the applicants for the uh, last round of the digital news uh, innovation fund um so i did that but uh, mainly working with startups and um, digital agencies and media publishers everything from kind of marketing through to business strategy and uh, yeah it's, it's been a really interesting year and uh, kind of working on uh, next year kind of refining that proposition a little bit more narrowing it down a bit more and uh, yeah so uh, i'll have more to announce on that soon 
Great, perfect. I'm really looking forward to that and looking forward to uh, discussing the news stories uh, from the past week uh, with uh, you, Natalie and Martin. I will start and I will talk, uh, as uh, mentioned before, about uh, e-scooters in Europe. particularly about more money uh, being poured uh, into this space. Last week, you might have noticed that uh, two more uh, e-scooter sharing startups uh, raised a total of almost 70 million uh, for uh, their platform, 70 million euros, that is. First one was the Swedish startup called uh, VOI Technology or VOI Technology. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It raised uh, 50 million US dollars from uh, Boulderton Capital and a few others. Right now, the startup is active with its scooters in uh, Stockholm, in Madrid and Saragossa and in Malaga. And it plans to use the money to expand uh, across Europe to the countries of Benelux, uh, to France, uh, Germany, Italy, Norway and Portugal. For now, uh, the scooters of uh, Void Technology have been taken for over 200,000 rides, according to the company's information, and these rides have covered a total distance of some 350,000 kilometers, so pretty impressive numbers. The interesting thing about Voy, though, is that it takes particular pride in uh, working closely with the municipalities in the cities of its operation. And they really like to talk about it. Uh, their CEO, Frederick Helm, uh, said recently that, uh, I quote, We strongly believe that using city streets and infrastructure to do business cannot be done without the full cooperation and support of the host city concerned. The quote ends. So Voy seems to actually have done a pretty Pretty good job uh, talking to the city authorities of Stockholm, their hometown. Because about a month ago, the local media reported, and we also covered that story, that the city was looking into banning the dockless uh, e-scooter rentals altogether. Uh, but now, judging by later reports, uh, Voy has managed to convince them not to do so. The latest stories about scooters in Swedish media that I read recently, they even featured quotes of the city's representatives saying that they are totally on board with the idea and they do think uh, that these rentals are the future of mobility, as the e-scooter companies like to put it. So definitely Voy has some ability to convince the authorities to work and cooperate with them. Now, the second story from last week is about another uh, company, about uh, Berlin-based Wind Mobility, uh, raising a smaller round, a meager 22 uh, million euros. Uh, Interestingly, it was also announced as a seed funding round, which normally don't go even close to these numbers, uh, even in the US, so like a huge, huge, huge seed round of 22 million euros. The scooters of wind are now available in several cities in Spain, which seems to be uh, really popular among these uh, companies, but also in France and in the US. In Germany, where it's from, it only operates a dockless uh, bicycle rental service called Bike with a Y, so B-Y-K-E. Interestingly, Wind is also working on a special model of an e-scooter that would be particularly fitted to uh, rental to rental business, to sharing business. Uh, normally, right now, most of the companies are using uh, e-scooters uh, from a company called Ninebot, uh, but Wind is going to introduce something new to the market. These ones are promised to have a longer battery range, uh, also have a possibility to swap uh, the battery uh, 
have more capability to climb hills and also be more sturdy, which is also uh, quite important for uh, for the sharing platforms. Eric Wong, uh, the CEO of Wind, uh, it told uh, TechCrunch uh, that uh, uh, the company has also created an IoT technology and communication module uh, that can deliver updates to scooters and uh, control some of the function of the vehicles, like maximum speed and stuff like that. So a lot of money being uh, poured into uh, this future of mobility kind of thing, which I'm personally still not convinced about. And we have discussed e-scooters for a few times in the previous podcast. Oh, Martin, our special guest, what do you think? Uh, are you convinced uh, with this offering? Um, I mean, I, th I think, put it this way, in my city I'm, I'm based in manchester in the north of england and uh, we had mobike come in and uh, they're one of the big chinese bike rental companies and uh, they pulled out they made headlines when they pulled out a few months later because of uh, vandalism and um, uh, basically people not respecting their scooters and uh, you know i've seen people even recently even after they pulled out driving liberated shall we say mobikes around the city um, <laughs> like out in the suburbs uh, just their own local their own things so I mean, that, and that was a real shame, really, that they had to do that. But then you do wonder whether this is right for every city. And uh, they cause a lot, if, if you've got lots of these companies, they cause a lot of uh, problems with uh, just leaving the you know, mess of these scooters uh, um, left around the city. So there are lots of problems. There are, you know, I, th I think uh, you do need to look at the way, for example, uh, San Francisco has really uh, clamped down on these uh, companies and uh, oh, they're only allowing a few of them to operate. Um, and uh, making sure the licensing is uh, is 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 airtight i think is really really important so that they don't either you know become basically a nuisance or they you know they get no support from the city and they're not really viewed as infrastructure this viewed as this weird thing that people don't really understand so i think working with the cities is actually really important um and as long as they're doing that and they're they're thinking of themselves as part of the transport mix for the city i think uh, you know th there's a lot there's a lot to be said for it as a as an experiment but i think what we'll find is that certain cities it's a lot more viable for and um uh, it, there's inevitably going to be a massive shakeout isn't there of these companies and um uh, you'll probably see some of the American ones buying out some of the uh, European ones. Hopefully, the other way around as well. Uh, we'll see. But uh, but you know, it's definitely a me too business at the moment, isn't it? And uh, um, yeah, uh, shakeout coming in 2019, no doubt. Have you tried an e-scooter yourself? Have you tried to ride it? I haven't. Um, I, I did try the mo the mo bikes. Obviously, they're, they're bikes um, uh, when they were in in, in Manchester. But um, uh, when I've seen people in places like Paris using e-scooters, they just feel really unsafe when you see people using them. They 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 make they put me on edge, um, and I don't like the idea of using them. And I think I'd rather walk, to be honest, than risk bumping into somebody and flying off into the road or whatever. Um, so uh, not for me, but uh, clearly uh, lots of other people enjoy them. Natalie, you also had a similar experience in Paris, right? No, in, in Lisbon, I saw um, it, it's popular for multiple people to ride the e-scooter at the same time. <laughs> so there was a instance of like three people on the e-scooter driving around Lisbon. And it, it can't go very fast when you have three people on it, but it looks incredibly dangerous. And also in Paris... Because you have such great wide sidewalks, people are driving them really, really fast. So I think Voy's strategy of working really closely with the city, kind of like using the taxify strategy, will be successful. 
because you can have the city come on board. You can integrate some of the policies and and some of the obligations for for riders as well. I mean, the city and also the the users of e-scooters should have certain obligations. It shouldn't just be a, a free for all because it, it it can be very dangerous. What's it like in Edinburgh? Oh. I have seen um, Edinburgh is probably the worst city in Europe for e-scooters because of the hills and because of the very poor pedestrian infrastructure we have here. Um, very narrow sidewalks that are not very flat and the drivers um, park everywhere they want. And so it, it's quite funny. Um, there's, a, there's a great Twitter account that just takes pictures of cars parked in Edinburgh horribly. Um, it, it's kind of a thing here. It's a, it's a trend. So Drivers, I don't think, are very uh, uh, would not be aware, or they're not expecting people driving around an e-scooter. So it would take a, a bit of learning uh, on both sides, I think, for both drivers and uh, um, the e-scooter users. But um, that hasn't arrived here yet. I'm not going to put it. I, we only just got bike bikes two months ago, so but I imagine it's coming. E-scooters is the story of 2018. Definitely. Um, and more to come, I imagine. I think there's something to be said for um, the, the slowness of local government and uh, how that might hold back. I mean, even though I was saying before that, uh, you know, these companies should be working with local government, um, the speed governments, um, local governments work with these companies uh, could be a problem and, and could really hold back growth, uh, even if there's pent up demand in the city. Um, we've had um, one car club, uh, you know, car rental uh, service, you know, app-based car rental service in Manchester uh, for quite a while because um, I was told uh, the, um, uh, the local council wants to assess um, whether they want to add more and how many and uh, how many they want to allow in the city and how that would work. But, um, you know, I want, for example, I'd love the uh, the BMW uh, service where you can uh, rent a, a, like a little i3 electric car. That'd be great to have in Manchester. And I spoke to them and they said, oh, we'd love to come to Manchester, but uh, um, we're not allowed to until the local council uh, decides what it wants to do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, whether it's a priority or not for these uh, these cities could decide whether this is uh, as hot as it could be or not. Yeah, that's true. That's a that's a pretty big uh, that's a pretty big barrier for uh, many of the companies to enter the market. Right. Let's move forward. Uh, uh, next story in the plan is uh, about university spin-offs. Uh, Natalie, uh, what uh, what is it from the last week uh, that has happened in this area? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about the university to market pathway in Europe and something that's really kind of been popularly criticized by some in Europe's tech and startup scene. In some ways, I think it's become fashionable for people to bash the role of universities today for being elitist, for being out of touch, or removed from the dialogue around business creation. And you regularly hear that with the abundance of online courses and different avenues for further learning, that universities are just not as important as they used to be. Or when they are conducting research, they're not commercializing enough, um, especially when compared to universities in the United States. And I think many of these points really come from a misunderstanding of what the goal and the object of 
what universities are meant to do. But also it's a myth that the pathway from university to industry in Europe is broken. So I wanted to explore this topic, especially in light of the announcement last week that Animal Dynamics, a spin out from the University of Oxford here in the UK, raised a six million pound investment to further their technology for the defense industry. Animal Dynamics, importantly, not to be confused with Boston Dynamics, of which it shares a number of similarities, also being a university spinoff, but they're from the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S., so in contrast, Animal Dynamics is it's a really creative firm that produces drone and unmanned aerial vehicle technologies that are inspired by the natural world. So one of their systems, the Skeeter, confusingly, despite the name, is designed after a dragonfly, uses flapping wing propulsion to power a short-range platform that can be used for surveillance. Another one of their technologies called the Stork is an unmanned vehicle that is planned to be used for logistics and delivery. And who knows, in the future, your Amazon package might arrive by Stork. And it seems very appropriate. In the past, of course, uh, because Storks were known for bringing bundles of joy. So who knows? But for applications in medtech and defense industries, university cooperation is really integral. And their success stories found all across the continent. CureVac, one of the first European unicorn companies, got its start as a spin-out from the University of Tübingen in Germany, where it is still headquartered. Earlier this year, NMD Pharma, a spin-out from the University of Aarhus in Denmark, raised a $47 million Series A. And later this summer, University College London announced that three of their spin-outs raised over £265 million pounds in two public offerings and a Series B. So that was just three startups this summer. Successful spinouts are found outside these fields as well. Last month, we learned ZoneFox, a cybersecurity startup started and spun out of Edinburgh Napier University here in Scotland, was acquired by Fortinet, a U.S. security company, for an undisclosed sum. So pulling together the data on the impact of the university and building startup success is sometimes difficult to find, and it's not always updated or organized very well. So this recent investment for Animal Dynamics contributes to an over 266 million pound of external investment for University of Oxford companies that have been raised since the year 2000. However, this total, I suspect, needs to be updated on their website. And when it comes to commercializing research or getting innovations out of the university, some universities are better at publicizing their efforts than others. So... Universities really do play important roles in connecting prospective founders, teaching entrepreneurial skills, and also by bringing greater diversity to startup ecosystems. Oxford is a great example with 16 spinouts created this year alone. And the impact of universities on the startup ecosystem goes far beyond what can be measured quantitatively. And I'm not saying that universities are perfect, but universities still remain integral engines of innovation. And it's important for universities to continue to demonstrate their value to the larger entrepreneurial ecosystem. Sure. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And uh, it's already going to be news of the week uh, following so news of this week but i just uh, uh, wrote a story on uh, a cambridge uh, based uh, uh, company that has raised uh, 30 uh, 30 million in funding so yeah it's definitely getting more and uh, more visible on the market 
Right. And, and Oxford, Cambridge and Imperial College in London are kind of the three universities that a lot of people kind of hold up as real kind of change makers and having a very successful market to uh, universe research to market pathway. But I think a lot of that is because they are very good with their communication and everything's in English because you see really great examples happening all across Europe. Um, and I, I was in Austria recently and learned of so many very exciting companies creating technologies that you just don't often hear about in the contemporary press. And also, some of this research never gets into the tech, traditional tech news. Um, it tends to stay um, in different sorts of channels. So kind of really developing that communication, I think, is important for, for universities to really highlight the contribution and the really important role that they have. Um, and I, th- I think that any time that, that I can, can do that, I, I really try to, to, to point that out. Because every time you meet founders and you ask, how did the company come together? Oh, well, we met together at uni. And if the university wasn't there to make some of those connections or also to foster some of these really early success stories, you wouldn't have a lot of the success in Europe that, that we have today. So I think that role is really important to highlight. Martin, you're working with startups. Uh, do you see many uh, university spin-offs uh, coming your way? Uh, yeah, a, a few. I think, though, the problem is, um, and um, uh, I think uh, you uh, probably hit the uh, nail on the head there, Natalie, with uh, communications, because there are so many university spin-outs out there that simply never really, uh, either they either never get flagged up as university spin-outs, that's one thing, or they just never attract any publicity and the universities themselves, their PR departments aren't really geared up for talking to say the tech press to, uh, to tell them about these things. Uh, and there are so many innovations that, yeah, they, they, they happen in uh, university labs and they're maybe funded by the EU and uh, a big tech company. And then they, disappear into the uh, the labs of the tech uh, of the tech company and then they have uh, evolve into uh, really exciting products a few years later i remember it must have been six or seven years ago now going into uh, a lab in manchester university and uh, seeing a, a very early prototype of facial recognition unlocking of a smartphone and uh, this was a, an eu project um, that i think was funded uh, co-funded by samsung um, uh, and uh, i think um, as a result ended up in uh, the facial recognition unlocking we see in samsung device today um but uh, that, that was a great example of something that was going on in my you know a few few miles from my house and unless i'd happened to meet someone who said oh you should go in and have a look at that i'd have never have known and there would have been no press around that at all and um yeah so uh, university pr departments i think need, need to step up and uh, and look at how they could be uh, talking about the innovations that are going on uh, in their uh, uh, in their labs and uh, among their uh, among their staff and their researchers um uh, because uh, there's a lot more that could be done in that respect yeah i don't really remember receiving press releases or any communications uh, coming from uh, universities themselves about uh, their uh, spin-out companies uh, being funded. Indeed. Are you, Martin, going to maybe work on this as a consultant and a, a media specialist? If any universities want to want to hire me, then they're more than welcome to talk to me. <laughs> right. Next, uh, next up is an uh, interview recorded by our founding editor, Robin Wouters, uh, with uh, Oscar Faras uh, from the European Investment Fund. And uh, we will be back after this interview in six minutes. Please stay with us.
Hey, this is Robin Walters from uh, Tech.eu, and I'm here at uh, the Connect Angels uh, event in uh, Luxembourg. I'm sitting now with Oscar Fares uh, from the European Investment Fund, who is uh, the organizer of the event. It was the first edition, so I'll let you explain why are we here. Yeah, thanks, Robin. So, indeed, it was the first edition of Connect Angels, and the idea is to put together in the same room our uh, portfolio of business angels, the business angels that have joined our uh, European Angels Fund uh, co-investment program, in order for them to share best practices, experience, and basically network and, and connect. Great. Well, of course, the EIF is mostly known as a fund of funds uh, in Europe, backed a lot of uh, uh, the big VC firms here uh, investing in European tech. I actually didn't know you work with business angels. So can you explain in what capacity do you work with them and what the ultimate goal of the, the collaboration is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is a less known feature of the uh, European Investment Fund, but indeed, since uh, 2012, 2013, we have this co-investment program with Business Angels. So basically, we partner up in selected geographies with the uh, top angels on a selection process based on track record, value add in the market, experience, and we match every single euro that they invest in uh, in startups. So it's a one-to-one -one, uh, matching program. Uh, no decision taking uh, from our side on individual deals, so absolute freedom for the business angels based on a, on a very good alignment of interest uh, between the two parties um, and, uh, and very minimum, um, let's say, um, workload or red tape for, for the BA, so, so complete freedom to operate. Uh, we are currently operational in seven countries uh, in Europe, that is uh, Germany, Austria, Spain, the Netherlands, Ireland, Denmark, and Finland. We are opening new countries in the new future, even a pan-European compartment with a capacity of up to 700 million to uh, co-invest uh, with business angels, of which we have deployed so far around 235 million with 85 business angels. And currently we have already a portfolio of more than 400 startups. Great. Well, that's a very clear uh, explanation and uh, so, some nice numbers there. Um, but do you feel like the program is, uh, it's obviously to, meant to stimulate angel investments, which, which it does. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you benchmark uh, the success of the program? Like, how do you think you can improve it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. What we have started doing is to analyze the activity of all the angels in our program before they joined the uh, European Angels Fund and uh, their activity now that they are uh, in the European Angels Fund. What we have detected is uh, an increased um, invested amount by the business angel in, in portfolio companies. So the both the absolute uh, volume uh, and also the average ticket per company has uh, increased, which means that more money is put into the uh, startup ecosystem via qualified angels that can bring not only money but value. And for us, this is very important. It's not only about the money that we can deploy because compared to the overall business angel market in Europe, which uh, some organizations uh, estimate at around uh, even 10 billion uh, euros uh, per wow. year, um, uh, what, what we can deploy is really minimal, but we do it through, uh, let's say, very qualified angels that can add value. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, how do you get access to the club? Like, what does an angel investor have to mm -hmm. sort of have, uh, aside from the geographical location, of mm -hmm. course, uh, but how do new, new people get in? And are you actually open for business for new angels? Yeah, we are definitely open for uh, business with new angels. What we look for, um, first, we have a look at the past investment experience, and we want to see um, at least uh, one, if not a few, successful exits in the past. 
We also take into account very much the entrepreneurial experience, not only the BA investment experience, but also entrepreneurial experience. Um, and we mix that with uh, the expertise or the support that the business angel provides to uh, portfolio companies. We take this, let's say, cocktail, and, and with this, yeah, we then we partner up with, um, let's say, the uh, top of the cream uh, Great. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not going to risk uh, sharing the ideas that you put forward because some of them are uh, quite rough. Mm -hmm. uh, still to the community today at the event. Uh, so I'll let you explain sort of uh, what, what are the plans for the future? What's on the roadmap? Mm -hmm. So on the roadmap, uh, besides increasing the availability of the program to um, new geographies in, uh, in Europe, which uh, we are working and basically what we need here is to find the uh, promotional bank or the national institution that will partner up with us to uh, to launch the program. We are working on the value-add uh, platform for, for the existing angels in the, um, in the program. Um, we are thinking of um, first data sharing among angels, sharing of best practices, um, connecting or uh, enabling more cross-border connections uh, to share um, also local knowledge. Um, and deal flow. And deal flow, of course. And um, regarding deal flow what we are thinking of is opening up the platform to uh, deal flow sharing so basically if one business angel in, in Germany has a, a deal in which there is still an available allocation he can open it up to other business angels in the uh, in the platform and even look for specific profiles like if the company is expanding into Denmark then why not uh, looking for a Danish angel in our program to join the round yeah makes sense well looking forward to see how the program develops um, congratulations on a successful first event and uh, hopefully we see a continuation and more angel investments especially cross-border uh, but thank you so much for your time oscar and best of luck thank you very much robin and for sure yeah we will uh, continue um, organizing this event in, in future years thanks perfect thank you welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu Episode number 97 released on November 28. Uh, thanks a lot to Oscar Fares and Robin Wouters for a great and uh, insightful interview about what the European Investment Fund is doing uh, with uh, business angels across uh, Europe. Now let's get let's get back to the stories of this week. Uh, Martin Bryant, uh, this is your turn to uh, talk about what has impressed uh, you most uh, from the past week. Yeah, so this was a story that um, uh, broke over the weekend and uh, it really got me thinking about uh, Europe as America's tech police. It feels, if you, if you look at the narrative in the tech press in America, it's all about how big tech uh, is uh, maybe getting too big for its boots and is uh, uh, you know, maybe it's time for some more regulation, that kind of thing. You look at all the, uh, the uh, drama around Facebook, always, it seems to uh, dart from one... Um, crisis to another and all of that. Uh, but uh, something interesting happened uh, in the UK at the weekend uh, when uh, the UK Parliament, it was announced the UK Parliament had seized a cache of uh, Facebook internal papers uh, using a really obscure uh, procedure, which uh, I don't think anyone had really heard of unless you're a real big parliamentary constitutional geek. Never been used before as far as uh, anyone uh, I, I've seen uh, knows. Uh, it was a mechanism whereby the, uh, somebody called a sergeant 
at arms for, from the UK Parliament. It's a very ceremonial role. Uh, it's a guy who carries a mace into Parliament. Uh, doesn't use it, you know, an old medieval mace. But um, uh, the, the sergeant at arms went to collect these uh, these documents from uh, the founder of a US software company who was in London. Um, uh, this is a company that's suing Facebook and happened as a result of uh, discovery from that uh, from that legal action in the states. Uh, had these documents that were relevant to the UK Parliament's investigation into uh, misinformation, uh, disinformation, uh, fake news, Cambridge Analytica, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and um, uh, this is uh, something that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has uh, very much uh, refused to engage with the uh, the UK um, Parliament and with uh, various other countries that are looking into this this kind of thing. And um, uh, and so they're getting tough. And they said they sent this guy around and, uh, and and got these documents and they've been reviewing them. And there's been a, a whole uh, hoo-ha back and forth between Facebook and the UK Parliament. Lots of very stern words sent backwards and forwards that were that were shared on social media, uh, letters and emails going backwards and forth about whether they were going to uh, share them with the public or not. Uh, kind of embarrassing for Facebook because this company uh, was uh, involved. They had an app that where you could um, find people wearing bikinis on Facebook. It was a very um, you know unwholesome app, uh, which I think is part of the reason Facebook's not keen on uh, uh, on drawing too much attention to it. But um, uh, so so th- that was interesting that um, fa- uh, that the UK Parliament was willing to go to these efforts to uh, get these documents. Whether there's anything of, of use in them is another question. We'll, we'll find out. But uh, um, really, kind of going further than just going getting uh, a Facebook rep into a room and asking them some some questions. Uh, when you saw in America, they were very uh, the the questions they asked were all like basically how do i set my privacy settings on facebook and all these kind of really like lightweight questions rather than uh in europe we seem to be a lot more harsh on these companies um and then if you look at um uh, uh price comparison sites there's another story last week uh they've accused google of failing to comply with an eu rule uh demanding uh it give uh, other shopping services equal treatment um uh, and uh, that was a, a letter sent from 14 um uh these vertical search engines these uh, um uh these search engines um, to uh, the European uh, Competition Commissioner, um, uh, following on from the um, uh, 2.4 billion euro fine uh, Google got uh, last year around uh, shopping. So uh, not letting not letting that lie and really pushing that forward and saying no, come on, you, you've got to really uh, you've got to really act on this Google. Um, I think European regulation gets a bad rap from some people who see it as overbearing and obtuse, and it, you know it certainly can be at times. Uh, you know you look at the EU link tax, which might lead to to uh, Google News being withdrawn across uh, the EU, uh, that's that's a um, uh, that's something that uh, I think a lot of people would uh, would say was uh, that an example of that kind of overbearing uh, legislation that uh, maybe uh, misjudges uh, what's best uh, for Europe in uh, in some ways, and maybe uh, relies on uh, certain interests lobbying more than uh, more than uh, the wider interests of Europe. Uh, but uh, I think overall, Europe is showing it can keep tech giants in. Check in a way the U.S. authorities don't really want to do, um, uh, and uh, you know the EU can't legislate for the world. Um, uh, uh, you've probably noticed uh, if you're in the EU that uh, if you go to certain EU news, uh, certain U.S. news sites, uh, they they're increasingly blocking EU visitors uh, because of GDPR, and they don't want to comply. And uh, European users aren't really worth that much to them anyway, uh, so uh, they think well, we'll just block them, and it's kind of balkanizing the internet, and that's that's slightly the EU's fault. Uh, but um, at the same time, uh, overall, I think uh, if you look at uh, GDPR influencing US uh, 
policymakers thinking about how they could uh, improve privacy for Americans, that that was totally inspired by GDPR showing that actually you can do this. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I think on the whole, I like the idea of Europe leading uh, on tech regulation. And uh, no, it's really good to see. And um, uh, I don't know if we'll see uh, any more... Uh, um, guys uh, from uh, parliament uh, in uh, ceremonial dress going around and uh, seizing documents from people. But uh, overall, um, yeah, the EU as a, as a, as a tech policeman is, uh, is an interesting idea. Do you think he brought the mace uh, to get those documents? Apparently not. Um, I, you know, I was thinking that you know that be you, know, you could threaten someone with a ceremonial mace, but uh, apparently that has to stay in Parliament, and um, uh, MPs get in trouble if they touch it. So uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's one of the rare bits of. Uh, oh, you know, the, the UK is one of these countries that has these really weird uh, constitutional things that nobody really knows about, but uh, are kind of established uh, things that people have to comply by. Uh, so yeah. The mace stays in Parliament, but uh, <laughs> Natalie, you like policy and golf tech. What do you think? Yeah, so I think one of the the best outcomes of that story is that Damien Collins, the the chair of uh, culture and media uh, at the UK Parliament, he actually tweeted his response to Facebook online, and it just it just kind of goes to show how integrated all of these services are with our daily lives, and now. We're responding to Facebook via tweet. It just seems like almost a, a twilight zone um, in some ways, but it, it's it's fascinating. And something at the DLD conference earlier this year, uh, there was so much conversation about kind of the U.S. and China being really the, the big competitors. And one of the key outcomes of the conference was, you know, Europe has such an important regulatory role and we should really be proud of that. And I think that was one of um, one of the real key outcomes of the conference was, you know, we should be proud of, of that we are taking this role and that we aren't letting kind of capitalist interests really rule everything here. Um, and I think that that made a very strong impression. And as we can see from what's currently been going on this whole year, um, definitely been living up to that that police role in, in a number of ways. It seems like it still seems like uh, uh, not all regulations coming from the European Union are equally uh, it makes make equal sense. Let's put it this way: if we all can agree that GDPR is generally a good thing, then uh, the link tax, I, I think, is probably the opposite. So it's uh, I, I'm not really sure how great uh, the fact that uh, Europe is uh, is regulating the internet. Uh, uh, more than anybody else, how great it is, given that it could really go for negative uh, consequences uh, for the for, for for the whole internet. Martin, what do you think of the link tax in particular that you mentioned? I mean, it's, it's stupid, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's uh, that's that's an example. I mean, we're saying like um, uh, capitalism not not ruling um, everything. Um, I mean, that that is totally the uh, the result of uh, European uh, publishers uh, lobbying uh, the EU. Um, uh, you know, the, the kind of Axel Springers of the world, the people who uh, aren't. aren't keen on Google at all and are very bitter that uh, Google has taken this huge chunk of uh, advertising revenue away, uh, which is understandable. But um, uh, going so far as to harm consumers probably isn't the uh, the best way of, uh, of going about things. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's been ridiculous for as long as it's been proposed. And uh, yeah, um, uh, it's looking like it, it, it's very likely to uh, go through, but, uh, but uh, you, you never know. Um, so is Brexit. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, 
uh, from my perspective, fingers crossed, neither of them go through. And another thing I wanted to ask you, Martin, uh, you as, as someone who has been working with the media at the media for so many years, what do you think of uh, uh, the attempts and general initiatives uh, of, uh, for example, Google and Facebook uh, to kind of pour money into uh, your, the European uh, journalism uh, ecosystems like Facebook is doing in the UK and Google is doing with the DNI fund uh, that you participated in evaluate, as an evaluator? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I have to say that uh, um, I have uh, worked with Google on that this year for uh, for, for a few months. So, uh, with with that in mind, uh, but but uh, taking a broader look at all of this, um, I mean. I think if it helps the European ecosystem, if it, if it truly helps, if it's not just um, uh, lip service and it's just like throwing a, around a few million quid that doesn't help anyone but look, makes good headlines uh, simply for, for policy reasons um, because they want to um, make uh, regulators think they're helping, uh, then, uh, you know, if, if it's just that, then that's not good at all. And, um, uh, you know, there, there was some talk uh, last week before Facebook announced that it was uh, investing in uh, supporting uh, paying for journalists, basically. Um, uh, in local media um, uh, for two years. It's spending, I can't remember how many millions, but um, uh, you know, a, a relatively small amount, but um, uh, it, it'll certainly help, I think, uh, 80 journalists it'll fund um, in local media uh, in the UK for two years. And um, so, so, but before that was announced, there was some talk that maybe they'd just be training up uh, local journalists to use Facebook <laughs> for, for, as a reporting tool, which wouldn't be very useful at all. Uh, you know, it'd be, uh, it'd be handy, but you know, a, a one-hour webinar and a, a certificate or something isn't really going to save local journalism uh, when uh, you could argue that uh, Facebook um, uh, and Google have, uh, have uh, um, helped uh, maybe reduce the, the quality of local journalism available uh, overall uh, due to the, the drops in revenue there. Um, so it has to be really good. It has to be, you know, it has to be good quality stuff. It has to be um, initiatives that really involve the, um, the, the news industry uh, and really uh, are credible and um, are, are presented with heart and uh, presented with uh, you know real commitment to what they're doing and um, uh, uh, from what I can say about uh, my time uh, with Google and the DNI fund I would say that the people working on that are passionately uh, you know passionate advocates for um, uh, for, for the news industry in in Europe um, and you know that's not just lip service that's that's something real so if it is that kind of thing then uh, then yeah go for it I say Speaking of Facebook's initiative, it was also interesting that I noticed that all this uh, money would actually go to pay not just for journalists, but for trainee journalists. Do you think, uh, being in the UK yourself, do you think this is actually what uh, the industry needs? Like more uh, entry-level journalists that would uh, be able to do their traineeships uh, in the newspapers? I mean, it's good. The question is whether there's jobs for them at the end of it. Um, uh, you know, more journalists is obviously a good thing. Um, but uh, uh, I think one thing that needs to be taught uh, and needs to be emphasized in, in any training for journalists these days is entrepreneurial journalism. So starting your own thing and uh, not just uh, relying on jobs with uh, your local paper or whatever, because um, uh, who knows uh, how long those will be around and uh, how quickly things will shift in that regard. So uh, uh, we had uh, big financial trouble for one of the big publishers of local uh, newspapers uh, in the UK uh, just uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, um, uh, in that uncertain future, being able to go out there and being brave enough to do your own thing and looking at business models around that, I think uh, you know, entrepreneurship needs to be part of journalism training these days. Natalie, do you have a take on the corporations funding journalism? 
You know, uh, something that's really interesting here in Scotland is we had um, a big bankruptcy a few weeks ago of, of Johnson Press, one of the, the largest news agencies here in Scotland. And the idea that journalism is something that is a sustainable business model is something that's increasingly under threat. And the more that local publishers, the greater stress that they're under by different sorts of technologies, but also due to changing business models is something that I think um, we, we should have concern over. Um, I don't know if I, I would always be uh, cautious if it was Facebook supporting um, local uh, journalism efforts. I, I don't know if I would feel a lot of trust um, for whatever um, they're they're doing. Um, and they they have a lot. They ha- there's a lot they need to do before they'll win my trust back. Even um, if they are supporting initiatives such as young journalists that that I do support. So I'm not really sure what what the way forward is. I think uh, Martin's right and. Supporting an entrepreneurial approach to journalism is very necessary, but there is a role that great editors and um, news agencies play. And I think kind of combining all of those in, in something that's a sustainable model and is very important. And exploring that is something I think um, more effort should be, be done um, into. Okay, last question on this, uh, but uh, Martin, you as uh, someone who kind of started your own thing uh, in, in terms of journalism with your uh, newsletter. So how easy is it? Well, it's easy to start something. Um, so my newsletter, uh, Big Revolution, uh, goes out every single day, literally on Monday to Friday, so it's seven, day, seven days a week, in fact, from Monday, uh, Monday to Sunday, um, right through the year. I'll probably take a bit of a break at Christmas, but uh, other than that, um, right through the year. And uh, it probably takes me about um, 10 to 12 hours a week uh, working on it um and uh, it, it's got a mixture of uh, things i've uh, you know news stories that i've uh, you know quick summaries of news stories uh, interesting reads for people but also uh, through the week it has uh, an original piece of writing i do every day myself so it's a lot of work and uh, i kind of uh, only set it up uh, because I wanted to um, keep on writing, even though I wasn't doing as much journalism as I used to. Um, and so it was more a, a, almost a hobby. But then I thought, well, I'll give people a chance to pay if they want to, um, to support it. And so it was an optional payment thing. If I'd have gone into it, um, if I'd have rethought it from the start, I might have said, right, this is a subscription thing from the start. Um, you've got to pay to subscribe. Um, I've not done that. Um, and so I, I, I looked at the other things I get from from it, like um, mental exercise and the fact I stay on top of the tech news, even though I'm not a tech journalist full time anymore. Um, so there are lots of benefits for it to me. But the commitment you need, you know, you need you need to plan these things out and you need to plan out the business model um, really carefully from the start because uh, you've got um, all sorts of things to worry about. You know, subscription fatigue uh, is a big one that's going to affect entrepreneurial journalism because uh, a subscription, you know, you've seen it can really work. Uh, publications like uh, uh, The Information, for example, uh, do, do it seems to be doing very well with uh, subscriptions, um, but people can only subscribe to so many things. And, um, uh, so my, my subscription, my optional subscription is $5 a month. And I am, I've had people saying, Oh, you know, it's worth way more to me than that. So thank you. And I've had other people say, I can get the New York times, uh, 
for less than that uh, digitally. So why am I subscribing to you? So well, it's up to you. Uh, so yeah, um, it, it's difficult to get right, I'd say. And I, uh, it's a blessing and a curse that I've decided to make it optional payments because uh, I have to make money elsewhere in my life. But uh, um, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it stops me having to worry too much about how many people are subscribing. And if you are an entrepreneurial journalist uh, uh, starting your own uh, thing, how long do you think it would on average uh, take uh, for someone to get to the break-even point? <laughs> it's a difficult question. You should ask Robin about that um, with, with tech.eu and, uh, and and see uh, see how tech.eu is going. But because um, uh, uh, he's probably got a lot more insight uh, uh, into that than than I have. Uh, you know, how long's a piece of string? It's a it's a it's a difficult question. It's, it totally depends on what you're doing, the business model, all of that. Um, uh, how unique what you're doing is. I think uh, hyper niche journalism is uh, is is increasingly important. So having a really tight uh, focus focus on what you're doing and drilling away at that really, really, uh, uh, really really um you know diligently and keep on going at that niche um and focusing really hard on it and uh yeah um i, th I think that, that that's probably uh, one of those important things but uh yeah uh, as with anything uh, there's, there's no hard and fast rules of how long it'll take to make it a success right and we will definitely get robin back on this podcast uh, one day hopefully soon now it's time to it's time to move on and next up uh, is uh the least the short list of uh, the most interesting events uh, coming up in the next few weeks according including our own uh, travel plans natalie where are you going yeah, so this week I'm really looking forward to the first Scottish Startup Awards, and I was one of on the lucky to be on the judging panel for that. So lots of great, um, wonderful people working in the Scottish startup scene, and um, really celebrating some of the and bringing the community together. Um, I think it's really important. And then this Friday, I'm going to be speaking at Founders Friday in Newcastle. Uh, Founders Friday is a monthly event that is put on by Paul Lancaster and a number of different um, people in Newcastle and really to bring the community together, share um, different news and lessons from the ecosystem and um, highlight different uh, exciting things that are happening in Newcastle. So I'll be speaking about our Seed the Future report and also about storytelling and due diligence for founders. So Andre and Martin, where can we find you guys this week? Now this week, nowhere really. I'm gonna I'm gonna be back uh, from a short uh, trip uh, to Belgium uh, later this week, and then I'm staying home. But next week, I am really looking forward to going to Helsinki to uh, to Slush. It's always a great, uh, great place to be. And uh, for everybody listening to this who are on Slash, please uh, let me know. Uh, write me, ping me on Twitter. Uh, let's have a coffee or something else. And then uh, the week after, I will also go to Kyiv, uh, Ukraine, uh, for the Seed Stars uh, CE uh, Summit, a uh, very interesting event uh, for Eastern European uh, founders and startups. I'm going to be a mentor. Uh, there also a moderator and um, a facilitator of a session so if you are there also please let me know and uh, let us talk uh, martin how about your traveling plans 
Uh, well, I'm actually quite light on events until uh, the new year. Uh, got uh, plenty of things to be getting on with uh, at home at the moment. But uh, uh, so if anyone has any suggestions of where I should go uh, early next year, please let me know. Um, uh, tech events around Europe, always good to uh, get out and about. But uh, uh, if you are in the north of England, then uh, um, I'm chairing a, a session on cybersecurity for business at uh, the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester on the 4th of December. Uh, that's a nice and early one. It's 8 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Uh, but uh, if you want to uh, um, uh, see the uh, the state of things for um, uh, business cybersecurity, then uh, it's a good place to be. You've got a, a great panel for that. And uh, you can find information about that um, at the organizer's website, which is pro-manchester.co.uk. Is it a part of uh, a bigger event or is it a... a um, no, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a one-off thing, um, uh, but a, a really nice venue as well, um, uh, the Science Industry Museum at the uh, the 1830 Warehouse there, which is a, a beautiful uh, beautiful venue. But uh, but but yeah, um, uh, I've, been, I've been very light on events, which is really weird because for, for years I went to so many tech events around Europe constantly. And this year it's, I've kind of taken a, a step back for a bit um, and it's nice to not be at all these conferences, but... Uh, uh, from next year, I'm sure I'll be out and about again. Excellent. So we'll put that event in the show notes. And if you're looking to fill up your event calendar, um, just a few things that might interest you. So this weekend, uh, November 30th through December 1st, catch tech.eu's founding editor, Robin Fouters, at the Digital Freedom Festival in Riga, Latvia. And the Digital Freedom Festival is a really cool event and with a really extensive program this year celebrating digital culture. And it's bigger than ever with 110 speakers discussing the latest trends in digital technologies and their impact on business policy and modern lifestyles. So go check that out. And the second event I wanted to highlight is that We Are Developers AI Congress, which will be held December 4th through 5th in Vienna. And this event brings together industry and the academy to examine the interaction between human and machines. So they'll also be addressing some further topics related to GDPR, very topical given our podcast this week, blockchain, of course, and the ethics of AI. So that might be something that you might be interested in checking out. So these events and more are on our website. And if you have a suggestion to add of a great event, please let us know. We have a link to a type form and you can get your event on our event calendar and we'll be happy to share it on the podcast. So go check that out. Okay, it's time to move on to my uh, favorite uh, section of the podcast, the recommendations of books and stories and podcasts on whatever uh, or whatever else we have stumbled upon over this week and wanted to share uh, with everybody listening to this podcast. Uh, Martin, you go first. Uh, what is it that you would like to share? Yeah, so we've already mentioned this a couple of times uh, in in the show so far, um, just by chance. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, I, it's not a book or a podcast uh, or a story. Uh, but I did want to flag up that uh, if you are interested in applying for um, Google's um, uh, Digital News Innovation Fund, uh, then you have your last chance in the next few days. Uh, the deadline is the 3rd of December for the current round, uh, which will be the final round. Um, of of this fund, so it was a 150 million euro fund. They've given out 115 million euros, I believe, uh, so far. Uh, and so, if you're working or you'd like to work on uh, a project which helps the news industry uh, and is uh, 
a digital project of some kind, um, a new tech product um, or, or a, a project of some kind, um, then uh, if you're in the news industry or the tech industry, uh, then uh, do check out um, newsinitiative.withgoogle.com slash DNI fund. And um, you can find out all the details about that. Um, and uh, they do everything from like little prototypes, if you just want to try something out, to, uh, you know, big, massive digital transformation projects for, you know, everyone from the smallest uh, one person uh, new little project to a massive, you know, publisher launching something that completely changes their business model. So uh, last chance for that uh, in the next few days. Yeah, great thing for entrepreneurial journalists among us. Uh, we will put the link uh, in uh, the show notes uh, on our website. So uh, check it out if this is uh, something for you. Uh, Natalie, uh, what's your recommendation of the day? Yeah, so this week, especially since we're taping this on Cyber Monday, um, and I've heard so many people talking about Black Friday even um, let's put our SaaS product on Black Friday special that I was a bit questionable about. I wanted to share some maybe more appropriate holiday gift guides. So I know not everyone celebrates the holiday with gift giving and not everyone buys gifts or has or celebrates a gift giving holiday. But if you don't fit into those categories and are looking for some holiday suggestions, I just wanted to share two gift guides that came out recently. Um, and you can find these in our show notes. So the first of these is from Allison Capen, the founder of Women Who Tech. And she's, she's produced a guide on 29 awesome gifts created by women in tech. And what's nice about this guide is that there really are suggestions for just about anyone in your life. And it's not just products made by women for women, um, but it's, it's really for everyone. And it also lets you know where the product is available. And there's tons of options for people shopping all across Europe. So don't feel like you're left out. And a lot of mainstream guides tend to do. So one of Allison's suggestions that stands out to me is Robo Wunderkind, a robotics toy for children. And it's something that I also discovered at Pioneers 18. And Robo Wunderkind is an Austrian company that has a modular system that lets children up to age 12 build their own robots. And you can also find their product on Amazon if this is something that um, you have a child in your life that might be interested in. So Techstars also has published their uh, 2018 holiday gift guide featuring really unique gifts from across their network. And I think it's something that more accelerators should be doing, um, especially if they're featuring uh, companies that have these B2C products. So one of the suggestions they highlight that stands out to me is called Kenko, which is an instant fruit and vegetable drink for busy people on the go. And this is something they also shared at Web Summit. And I got a lot of traction um, when I shared, shared this product on social media as well. So I think I'm going to get that um, for someone um, I know might be perfect for. So Kenko is only available though in the US, Canada and the UK at this time. So sorry for everyone else around the continent. So another standout product on there is the Lumos bike helmet, which is a bike helmet with an integrated brake light and turn signals, which is perfect for the dark European winter. It's available for everyone across the continent. I don't know if it's good, useful for uh, e-scooters, but it's worth a try. Um, so have a look at that if that's something interesting. Lots of different ideas and suggestions on those guides. So have a look um, and check it out. 
That sounds great. It's nice that you mentioned the Robo Wunderkind, uh, since I actually know one of the co-founders of the company, Anna, and she uh, she is Ukrainian. She's coming from Ukraine, uh, and I do second the recommendations. I recommendation. I think this is a great product. Martin, do you have any particular gift guide recommendations uh, for the season? Gift guide recommendations? Uh, nothing. Or gift recommendations? Oh, I, I, I'll tell you what. Um, nothing European, unfortunately, but uh, um, I, I've got them in at the moment moment so I, I will recommend apple airpods if you thought they were stupid uh, a year ago or a couple of years ago now i think they've suddenly become really ac- uh, um, acceptable uh, certainly i am people have stopped staring at me for wearing them so uh, they're a good thing to get for people because they won't get stared at anymore and uh, they don't look weird anymore so uh, that's why i say they're, they're the best head- headphones i've ever owned i wonder if it would have happened uh, with google glass if more people started uh, using it <laughs> Would it become yeah, more acceptable? Yeah, possibly. Um, uh, bit, bit, bit bigger um, uh, gap between uh, acceptability and um, uh, what they are uh, there, I think. Um, uh, I remember I used to wear a, a wearable camera. Uh, remember the narrative clip oh, yeah. uh, from the sweet, oh, sweet yeah. Swedish company? <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I wore one of those. And um, uh, um, there was a whole thing where I got into trouble uh, at immigration in, uh, at the airport in Atlanta once where I accidentally wore it. And I wrote a post about that. And uh, it was fine. Uh, but they were a bit worried I was wearing some kind of spy device for a while. But, um, uh, but I just remember really freaking people out with that. Um, but I, I'd wear it just to take photos of, you know, my day, which is what you were supposed to do with it. It would, it would take, a, you wore it and it took a photo every 30 seconds, I think. Um, but, um, I remember I was, uh, giving a talk to a bunch of librarians about digital tech and, um, we went to the pub afterwards and they suddenly realized I'd been wearing this thing for the whole thing. And they were suddenly really, really freaked out. So, uh, yeah, I think anything that uh, requires informed consent before you can wear it in public or, uh, you know, informed consent is better than uh, probably has a bit of a, too much of a barrier to uh, acceptability but uh, airpods uh, you just get funny looks at worst <laughs> right well anyway it's a bit too late for google glass anyway i guess now it's only going to be used in uh, uh, some sort of industrial applications and uh, not in the in, in in the customer space which probably a good thing for now at the very least now it's my turn to uh, to share uh, something and uh, my recommendation of the day is going to be a story it's a piece on the new york times about uh, how sweden uh, of all places is rapidly becoming a cash less economy. It turns out that one in five Swedes uh, doesn't use cash machines anymore at all, and uh, the bills and coins uh, now represent only 1% of uh, the economy of the country, and for, uh, for entire Europe the average uh, figure is 10%. But also it turns out uh, that some of the country's citizens are not that happy with this development. And first of all, uh, this would be the older uh, generations of people who are not comfortable, as they put it, to use smartphones and computers to do their banking, rather than going to branches and uh, taking uh, the cash out of uh, cash machines. Uh, Also, some other categories of people who could be left behind because of this transformation are migrants and uh, people with certain disabilities that would also not allow them to use uh, these new ways of paying. Uh, In addition to that, there is a higher level problem, as this story goes, uh, that without cash, uh, the government would have much less control over the currency in the country. And this is why the Sweden authorities are already working on a project of a special digital currency, the e-krona, to counter this, and this uh, currency apparently is going to be tightly controlled by the government. But there is also another fun fact I learned uh, 
from this piece. And it turns out that there are already more than 4,000 people in Sweden who have NFC chips implanted in uh, their uh, in their hands, just uh, up above uh, their thumb. And these uh, NFC chips uh, can be used uh, in the railway system. They introduced uh, uh, support for that uh, relatively recently. Or, for example, for contactless payments or for entrance into buildings and just things like that. Wherever you would normally use NFC in your phone, you can use with this with this kind of chip. And it seems like Sweden is going to be a really interesting example of the societal transformation kind of powered by technology from contactless and cashless payments to these NFC chips and stuff like that. And I'm really, really excited to watch it happen. I'm not really sure if I want to get this NFC chip in my own hand just yet, but it's definitely something that's really interesting. And Martin, I remember that you actually addressed uh, this kind of thing, uh, uh, someone that was supposed to be happening in, in the UK uh, along the same lines. Uh, what uh, What's your take on this? Uh, the, the, the chips and the fingers and things. Yeah, well, that, there was a newspaper story that went around... Um, about a week ago uh, that uh, was saying that this was going to be a big thing. Um, I think, to be honest, this probably came from a uh, from a press release from a, a Swedish uh, company that wanted to sell these things into the UK more and was saying it was going to be a big thing. Uh, that's my guess uh, because it was, I don't know, I, I, it freaked a lot of people out, but I don't think it's going to be, it's going to see massive adoption. It's not because it frees people out and uh, things uh, if you're a company you're not going to say we're going to make it mandatory that everyone has a chip embedded in their um, in their hand uh, for security reasons if that's going to be a, a staff retention problem or a recruitment problem because people get freaked out by it i, st- I think we're still at that stage uh, there are some useful cases for this you know around the idea of for example if uh, you need access to special bank vaults or you know really secure areas where hyper sensitive documents are kept or something you can see how that could be something where you know the only way someone's going to um, sneak into that is by chopping your thumb off, um, uh, and uh, there I can see it. But otherwise, you know, for, for most payments and things, use your phone, use NFC in your phone, use use Apple Pay or whatever. You know, it, much uh, uh, much more convenient without uh, feeling like you're uh, you're bionic. But that said, I think we are going to go down that route eventually. There's been a story um, uh, this week about um, DNA editing. Um, uh, for um, uh, newborn babies uh, in China. So I, I think this stuff is coming, but we're not ready for it yet. Oh, you know, but uh, staff retention uh, for these companies is going to be really easy. You get a chip for everyone and then you revoke the permission to open the door. Well, yeah. <laughs> so you physically retain the staff in the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you lock them in, yeah. <laughs> Natalie, I see you, you don't like the idea of getting an uh, NFC chip in your hand. Would you consider this in any way at all? No, and I think it would also be really hard to do in the UK because we don't have uh, European identity cards or kind of a, we're like the only UK, uh, I mean, sorry, EU country that doesn't have a identity card because of these privacy, these privacy concerns. And you have to have a lot of trust in your government to allow them to uh, chip you, essentially. Um, and I don't think that will happen in the UK ever. I, I just, maybe one day, but definitely not anytime soon. Um, and it is a bit frightening. And it also kind of brings this point um, with a, this small selection of Swedish people that 
feel really kind of left behind in in this transfer this cashless transformation. Um, and it makes me wonder what sort of initiatives are going to be done to ensure that these people are fully included in society. Um, it reminds me of a, a really great company from Berlin called Barcelon, which allows people to continue to pay all their bills using cash. Um, and it, are we going to leave this to the private sector to to decide, or is it something that um, the government is going to be able to bring people along? Um, that's an interesting question. It is a really big question, and and, and it does uh, seem that uh, the people in uh, Sweden have a lot of a lot of trust to the government. But also, you see the difference between the story that Martin mentioned and the story about Sweden is that it's not a company, not a corporation, not uh, not the government itself that kind of try to impose this onto onto the people, but just people really willing to become this sort of bionic, uh, bionically um, upgraded, if you will. And uh, and yeah, I also think that uh, Martin is right about uh, where this uh, story came from because this uh, Swedish company Biohacks, it's called with an X at the end. Uh, I think they are like almost a monopolist uh, on the market of uh, uh, this NFC microchipping. But I mean, it is really interesting. I will think about it maybe maybe next year. Maybe next year. I just don't have this many NFC uh, NFC things in my life. My uh, entrance into my building is still with an old-fashioned key, and I don't really I don't really use NFC that much. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be that cool. Yeah, and and surprisingly, even in places like here, so Scotland um, has a long um, relationship with iZettle and they also developed um, cash payment solutions, which are these card readers. And you'll be, it's very surprising that there are a lot of things that you do need to have cash for. Um, and especially across the continent, it, it is surprising um, how uneven cash, um, a cashless society is. Um, in Germany, it really bucks the trend of this 10% figure completely. So um, it is interesting because it does, if if you are completely operating on the cashless society, it does limit your um, ability to maneuver in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting uh, to see this uh, uneven distribution of technology and when you come from the Netherlands to Germany, for example, because here in the Netherlands, I don't really carry cash at all. I have like two places uh, where I pay cash. That's uh, hairdressers and the garage where I, where I bring my car uh, for repairs. Everything else, <clears throat> I almost always uh, pay uh, by a card. And then sometimes together with my sports team, uh, we go to Germany uh, for tournaments and things like that. And uh, usually in the chat, uh, someone would say, so remember, we are going going to Germany, we need to bring cash. We're not going to be able to pay with cards in most uh, most places. This really surprises me, though, how, uh, how this uh, difference uh, occurs. Yeah, and, and something I'm also interested in is this e-krona currency, because I know Estonia tried to develop this S-coin uh, earlier this year, and they got kind of hammered um, for it um, because the EU was was really um, not happy about it. But maybe it's, it's definitely easier for uh, Sweden because they're not using euros there. So interesting. I'm, I'll definitely be following along for sure. As long as it's not a cryptocurrency, I'm fine with it. Cryptocurrency also makes a great Christmas present. And Andre, I think, would love to try out the new... If you have a great new cryptocurrency, I think Andre would love that in his stocking this year. Martin, what do you think about cryptocurrencies and currencies in general? Do you think it makes sense to create this new sort of government-controlled electronic currencies at all? 
I think, I mean, any currency is is government controlled, isn't it? It's, it's issued by the government. Any you know national currency um, or even you know, European currency, you know, it, it, the euro, it, it's 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 issued by a, a central uh, authority which is uh, accountable to the public. So I, I I kind of see where it's coming from, but uh, the civil liberties uh, and tracking aspects and things like that around it. Um, uh, are concerning um, and, and would be concerning for a lot of people. So is it necessary? Uh, th- th- that's my thought. Is it really necessary? Can't we just um, uh, work with an electronic version of an existing currency rather than go through, through crypto- cryptocurrency? I- I'm, I'm unsold on it, to be honest, at the moment. I actually, I think I see this uh, thought a lot in your newsletter, just asking this particular question uh, to every other story that uh, you write about. Is it necessary? Is it really something that uh, people want and need uh, around the, from the technology? Yeah, well, I, I think I, I've probably, um, I think a lot of people who uh, were really into tech maybe 10, 15 years ago um, uh, were really, really enthusiastic about the potential for the world. And then you get to the point where it's like, well, actually, you know, do we need all of this? Is it going to make things worse? You know, we were all like really excited about social media uh, back in 2004, five, six, seven. And then, and then now look at, um, uh, we're having parliamentary guy going around and collecting papers uh, relating to Facebook in weird, obscure uh, uh, ceremonies and things. So I don't know. It, it, we're all very scared about technology. I think in a way we weren't um, uh, in certain ways uh, a few years ago, uh, a bit more jaded about it. Uh, and I think it's healthy to ask these questions. It's healthy to ask, do we really need this or are we diving in because we can? Uh, the old uh, Jurassic Park uh, quote about your scientists were so wrapped up with whether you could do this, you didn't ask whether you should. And I think that that Jurassic Park quote is something that uh, that we should keep in mind whenever we're developing new technologies. What we do need to do, unfortunately, right now is to wrap up this uh, podcast. We have uh, we have discussed uh, a few really interesting, exciting stories, uh, listened to an insightful interview, and uh, that's it for today. I really hope uh, everyone listening has enjoyed it. Do not miss new episodes. Uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, uh, including Spotify or uh, SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Also, please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Uh, uh, particularly on iTunes, uh, which definitely allows it. This will help others find it and uh, will also mean the world for ourselves. Please do it now if you can. Tell everyone you know and for whom it would be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu or natalie at tech.eu. Natalie and Martin, thank you so much for joining today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Andre. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.